Welcome to Getting Goosebumps, the power of storytelling. The weekly podcast helping you to craft stories that inspire, entertain and convince. Each week, listen to leading industry experts from top marketers and CEOs to producers and writers from the entertainment industry. Learn how to elevate your brand message and spare your audience into action. Hello and welcome to another episode of Getting Goosebumps. In this week's show, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by a Wall Street Journal best-selling author of Hooked How to Build Habit-Forming Products, Nia Isle. Among many things, Nia is well known as a captivating public speaker, behaviour design consultant and investor, but more prominently for helping design and marketing teams create more engaging products. In our chat, Nia isn't afraid to get controversial through his expert opinions. We discuss some popular companies who are great at creating habit-forming products and how they do it. And Nia also offers some great examples and insights using his four-step hooked principles. The mirror exposure effect, the roach motel technique, and his ethical bar, the regret test. We get straight into conversation from the start, and Nia provides thought-provoking pearls of wisdom I know you'll enjoy. Hello and welcome, everybody. Uh, this week, I am so pleased to be joined by Nia Ale, author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nia, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. Nia, for the benefit of the audience, can you just start by giving us a, a little background on, um, on what brought you to, to write that, uh, the, the great book, Hooked, in, in 2014? Sure thing, Brian. So um, let's see. So I had started two tech companies previously, and the last one was at the intersection of gaming and advertising. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest with you, gaming and advertising are two industries that are dependent upon, uh, there's no nice way of saying it other than calling it mind control. (laughs) (laughs) You know, advertisers don't spend all that money for their health and gaming companies know uh, what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so Uh, At the intersection of those two industries, I learned a lot, Uh, and this was exactly at a very opportune time. Uh, I was in the industry back when there was no such thing as mobile phone apps, at least not on a widespread uh, use because the the, uh, Apple App Store hadn't opened up yet. Mm -hmm. So we were were watching the Facebook platform very closely, and this was back in the days when you you could get a million users on Facebook apps in in the matter of, of a day or two. So those were our clients. We we served those folks, and I just became fascinated with this all this strange behavior that I saw online. This new opportunity to engage folks, and so I really want to understand the deeper psychology behind how these products did it, and how some of these companies, you know, made tremendous hits while others produced these terrible misses. Uh, and so I really want to dive deeper. I, I had this hypothesis that. The companies that would make it in, in, in the mobile uh, decade or so that, that, that we've seen here are going to be the ones that are masters of creating consumer habits. And I think that's, that's definitely borne out that the companies that can change user behavior uh, through habituation are the ones that really succeed. I mean, that is such a huge competitive advantage. Uh, it's, not, it's not that products that don't build habits are bad businesses. It's just that they keep fighting each other tooth and nail because, you know, what happens with products that aren't habit-forming is when when one company says, oh, we've got this new feature, then everybody else has to copy that feature. And then when another company says, hey, we dropped our price, you know, a few cents, well, now everybody has to drop their price a few cents. 
Whereas if you look at the companies that are build these habit forming products, you know, if you think about in the, in the, in the uh, web space, if you think about in consumer web companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp, and then in the enterprise space, companies like Slack and uh, GitHub and even Stack Overflow or Salesforce. And then even if you think of uh, offline products, you know, like Starbucks and Coca-Cola, uh, these are products that are so good at forming habits and they all create this amazing competitive moat around the business that makes for a very valuable company uh, as well as arguably, you know, creates these habits in people's lives uh, that for the most part, I can't say every single one of these companies, but for the most part, you think about companies like Google or Slack or Salesforce uh, are, are products that are loved by their customers and do a lot of good for the world. So what I wanted to do is not, you know, I don't teach those companies. I don't work for those companies. I use them as my case studies so that the rest of us, right, the people who are building all sorts of products, the, the people who are building products to help people save money or exercise more or be more efficient at work or stay in touch with family members, all of us should be using the, the, the deeper psychology of what makes a product engaging to design better products and services. You know, the real problem out there is not that a few companies suck us in. The real problem is that far too many products just plain old suck. And so my mission is really about how do you build a kind of product that, uh, that, that people want to use. And, and fortunately, what I see out there is that there are plenty of products people want to use, but because of lack of good product design, don't use. And that's a real tragedy. I really want to help those entrepreneurs and marketers and builders and innovators uh, to build the kind of products that people not only want to use, but actually do end up using. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, I think the average consumer, probably the average person in the audience, to be honest, would think, you know, some brands we have an affinity with, we just like, uh, and some brands don't necessarily sort of resonate as, as much. Listening to you, Nia, that, that sounds like um, that's, that's no accident, you know? And, like, you know, we've all heard, like, the Apple story and Simon Sinek and Start With Why and, and that, that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, from a, um, a persuasion and influence point of view, um, how would you go about building a brand from the ground up with those things in mind to be... Uh, to create more affinity with an audience and, and to be more yeah. engaging and, and that kind of stuff. What's your view there? I guess I guess I, I like to be a contrarian sometimes, and I think this is probably a point of uh, where I might disagree. I don't actually think brand is as important as people think it is. Mm, wow, okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm ruffling some feathers right now. Yeah, uh, great. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> here's why. I mean, when people think of brand building and creating brand affinity and creating love marks and all that stuff, it's, it's a lot of gobbledygook because... Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's about a product that serves people's needs. And what we tend to see, what the data bears out, is that people actually don't love brands that much. They love what the products do for them, the problems they solve for them. Uh, that's what's so important. And I think that, to do that, you really need to understand customer psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the part of a point of evidence here is, you know, for, for the past century and a half or so since the advent of mass market uh, advertising, what we've seen is that companies have influenced people. They've changed their opinions about a brand mm-hmm. through a, a, a psychological principle called the mere exposure effect. And the mere exposure effect says the more you see a brand, a name, an image, the more you see that thing, the greater affinity you develop for it. 
And so that's why you see billions and billions of dollars spent on television ads and billboards and radio spots because it's using that mere exposure effect. And that, and that works. It still works. It's, it's still highly effective. But let me ask you a question. You know, when was the last television commercial that you saw for Slack, the fastest growing enterprise product in history? <laughs> I've never seen them on TV. Right. Or when was the last time you saw a billboard for Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or any of these products? You, you don't really see these companies spending very much money, very little. They do spend a, a, a little bit, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to their market capitalization. I mean, if you think about how much Coca-Cola has to spend as a share of its market cap compared to how much you know, Facebook or any of these other companies I mentioned spend, it's, it's a joke. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the question has to be, why? Why are these companies that are worth more and touch more people uh, than these companies that spend a ton of advertising, why, how can they get away without spending all that money on ads? And the reason, the fundamental shift, is that these companies do not change consumer preferences and tastes and habits through the mere exposure effect as other companies did, but in fact, it's the design of the product itself that changes people's preferences and opinions about the product and about the brand. So my contention is that it's, it's much more cost-effective, and we have this golden opportunity. I don't know how much longer it's going to last, but at this point in time, there is an amazing opportunity to change consumer preferences by designing the kind of products that people engage with as part of their day-to-day -day habits, just as these other companies have. And so that's what my book, Hooked, is all about. Mm. Wow. Okay. I mean, this, there really is some contrarian views there. Um, and I guess where, if I'm hearing you right now, I would say the crossover with brand and possibly a compromise would be, you know, I think a, a part of good brand is experience by design. Right. You know, so I think experience, I think exposure is huge. And I totally buy into, if you see enough of something, you might actually create more affinity. However, I, every single day, um, it's a habit. It's, in fact, it's not a habit. I would say it's fed. I would say it's a ritual. I walk past Costa to go buy Starbucks. Okay. And they both sell coffee. So I, I think I've got more of an affinity to, to Starbucks. Now they, they actually happen to, I think make great coffee, but they, they also tell great stories. Um, you know, if, if the crossover, if a big part of brand is experienced by design and, you know, in your book, um, I think essentially the, the real smart play that you've dug into is a brand experience by design can be optimized to create more uh, habit forming behavior. So do you think, do you think there's a good crossover there? Well, just to walk back some of it, by the way, I like to ruffle feathers and then, uh, and, <laughs> because nothing is so simple, but you know, when you, when you make a bold statement, sometimes it gets folks' attention, which is always yeah, So I'm not, I'm not saying that, 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 that traditional display advertising and, and, and uh, brand building in the, in the way most people consider it mm. is, is a bad thing to do. It's, it's sometimes the only thing you can do, you know, when, yeah. when you're in a market with a commodity product, uh, you know, like, Coca-Cola, for example, or uh, Exxon, Mobile, you know, any product that is basically a commodity needs to differentiate itself based on some kind of moniker, some kind of brand, right? Coca-Cola can't yeah. sell its, its, its uh, wares in a, in a black and white can that just says sugar water on it. Uh, <laughs> totally agree. It has to build a brand affinity. It has to be buying happiness or whatever it is today that their, that their slogan is. Uh -huh. So, um, so it's not that it's a bad strategy. I'm just, I'm just pointing out the fact that, 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 you get much more bang for the buck 
if you first start with the, the behavior you're trying to change, and, and more importantly, the itch you are trying to scratch for your customer. So, you know, in Starbucks case, Starbucks is a perfect example of this. Uh, you know, we talked about how if you're not building a habit, you're fighting tooth and nail over every penny uh, with your competition. Mm-hmm. Starbucks, just a few months ago, raised the price of all their coffee, uh, you know, by five cents, a, nick, uh, a dime here and there. They raised the price of almost all their, their, their drinks, and nobody noticed. <laughs> it impact their, their sales. And so all that money went straight to the bottom line, right? It was all pure profit. Uh, their cost didn't suddenly increase, but their prices did. And the reason they can do that is because they have formed a habit. They have formed this routine that, as you said, you, you walk by the, their competitor that's selling cheaper coffee mm-hmm. and you prefer to go to, to the Starbucks. And I would argue that part of that, it utilizes many of the principles I talk in my book. For example, you know, of this four-step cycle of the trigger, the action, the reward, and the investment, you know, they have really nailed a, a, a lot of those basic steps particularly when it comes to the app. I think the Starbucks uh, app, I'm not sure if it's the same uh, in the UK as it is in the US, but man, are they geniuses of designing this app built for habit. I mean, you, you, know, you, you use this app, if you install it on your phone, you pass by a Starbucks and it will send you what I call an external trigger, a notification that says, hey, you're passing by a Starbucks, can we get your drink ready? You know, sometimes I buy it, I wasn't even thinking about coffee, and yet, you know, this external trigger will prompt me to say, oh, you know what, I actually am. You swipe the app, that's the action phase of the hook, this simple behavior done anticipation of reward, it knows all your preferences because you've invested in the app, I, that's the fourth step of the hook, the investment phase. So with just a few short clicks, you have made it so easy to, to buy your coffee that it, it, it makes it silly to go anywhere else because it's so convenient. It's so well done. And then, of course, you know, they, they utilize, they do several other things very, very well. Uh, but I think that's a, an example of a company that really does understand the power of, of habits. Oh, absolutely. And that makes perfect sense. I've recently started using that app. And um, the icing on the cake for me is you, you get to walk into Starbucks with a smug look on your face. You don't queue up. You go right to where the coffee's being yes. served and it's right ready for you. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that you cannot, I cannot underemphasize how important it is to think about friction. It's a, it's a big part of my book where I talk about these very simple things that companies do to make a, a, a behavior just a little bit easier yeah. and what a massive impact that has. And there's almost no company that can't take this advice. Almost every company I interact with that I consult for that, that, that calls me and asks for help, almost always the thing that they want people to do is too difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the companies that, that spend time figuring out how to remove steps, with, which, by the way, is the very purpose of technological innovation, all innovation. I don't care if it's the cotton gin to the iPhone. All technological innovation serves one purpose, and that is to reduce the distance between the recognition of the need and the reward. And so we have to be ruthless about taking out every single solitary step, even if it saves the customer a couple seconds or a a question that doesn't pop in their mind because we've answered it for them or clearing the interface so that it's totally obvious what the user should do on each uh, page of, of of an app, for example. This stuff pays huge dividends. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, is it your experience, Neil, that um, when you go into organizations that that need help in this way, 
that uh, a big mistake that we see is um, organizations will immediately up the reward rather than reduce the friction. Oh, a huge mistake. I see it all the time. So wait, tell me more about what you see. So um, we, we do customer journey mapping and we do candidate experience mapping, actually. So candidate experience mapping is interesting. So organizations put in candidates through their paces to, to hire people. And sometimes they'll ask them to fill in forms more than once um, or, you know, they'll ask them for repeat information and that kind of stuff. So, so that's, there's the sort of the friction element. But uh, a big part of um, hiring people in organizations today is referral, right? So they'll ask current, the existing re- uh, employees to refer their friends. And rather than make it really, really easy, they'll focus on saying, look, you know, instead of $1,000 per person that we hire, we'll give you $2,000. And actually if you just make it easier, you're much more likely to get more referrals, right? And I, I guess that, that must translate right across the board, does it? How right you are, how right you are. It has so many, there are no, you know, it's, it's such an intellectually lazy thing to do that what tends to happen is, you know, let's give them more money or more coupons or some kind of reward. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it's, it backfires for so many reasons. Number one, it's artificial. Right, you're giving an extrinsic reward that has nothing to do with actually using the product itself. Mm-hmm. And we know when we give extrinsic rewards, whether it's uh, getting your, you know, there have been studies that show that that children who are rewarded for drawing a picture uh, draw worse pictures. You know, if you give them a piece of candy or something, versus if you ask them to just draw for the joy of it, they draw much more creative pictures, and they will draw for longer when it's an intrinsic reward versus an extrinsic reward. Mm-hmm. And so we do the same kind of crap with our customers because we're lazy. We don't think about how to improve the product. We say, oh, here's a coupon or here's some money or you know, here's something to get you to do something you don't really want to do. But if I increase the, the, the reward, maybe you'll do it. The second reason it's so terrible is that, again, we're conditioning the customer. Every time the user interacts with us, they are being conditioned to expect certain things from us in the future. So if we make a product experience that, re, that, that gives the user uh, a, a satisfaction from what I call this internal trigger, this emotional itch that they have, that we're scratching for the user, if we're actually solving their problem, that trains them to come back to us when they have that problem. But instead, if we train them with, hey, this is a great way to make a few bucks, we attract the kind of people that we don't really want, who are just doing it for the money. And so it backfires for many, many reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned um, advertising when, uh, when we first started talking, gaming and, and advertising, and you mentioned mind control. Really interesting sort of aspect this, because I'm interested in your thoughts on the difference between um, influence, persuasion, and manipulation. And where's, yeah. the, where's the ethical line? Because based on what we've just been talking about, you know, it sounds like if we can align what the audience really wants and we're, right. we're creating convenience, then we're on the right side of, of, of ethics. Where, where do we step over or where do you see the gray area? Yeah, no, this is fantastic. And I, I think it's a very important question to ask. And so I'm, I'm super glad you asked it. Uh, so, so I separate manipulation into two categories. And I use that word manipulation because, I, again, I want to get a little bit of a reaction from folks mm-hmm. because our, our knee-jerk reaction is that manipulation is always wrong. And I don't think it always is because clearly we pay for the privilege. When I go to a movie and I sit in the theater, 
Uh, and I watched this, this silver screen, which is, you know, just, it, it nothing, that, it's not real. I'm being manipulated into thinking that this flickering light uh, get, is, is real people. And even those real people that I'm seeing on the screen, those are just actors, right? So I'm being manipulated all over the place. But of course, I pay for that privilege. I want my emotions to be manipulated. People say that a, a movie is good if it makes them feel something, right? If it makes them uh, scared or if it makes them uh, uh, cry or, you know, th that's why we pay to have our emotions manipulated. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think we can separate manipulation to two categories. On one end of the spectrum, we have persuasion. And on the other end, we have coercion. Persuasion is perfectly ethical. Persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Coercion is the opposite. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. And so how do we tell the difference? How do we know when someone, uh, whether we're using a tactic that is persuasive versus one that is coercion? And so this is where I propose uh, this ethical bar that I call the regret test. The regret test says that we can know something is coercion if the user regrets doing that behavior, okay? That's the ethical bar, that's the test. And so what I want product teams to do, marketing teams, anybody who's working on a customer-facing experience, is when something is questionable, when something is shady, and, you, and you, you, you know, we've all been in these meetings where somebody will propose something and people kind of say, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Instead of pushing it to market and then seeing what happens, because in this day and age, you know, you can get punished on social media like you wouldn't believe. If you piss people off, they will plaster what you did everywhere. It has some serious repercussions for your brand. So instead of risking that, what I propose we do is to take a small group of users, bring them in, and we ask them, you know, having done what you just did, do you regret knowing what you now know? And that simple question takes care of 99% of the ethical concerns I've ever seen play out. That if people would just ask that simple question of, you know, is this something that you would have done knowing everything that you now know, we can tell the difference between persuasion and coercion. So, you know, the, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one quick example just because it's top of mind and, and, and I, I hate this brand, so I want everybody to know not to buy from them anymore. <laughs> Recently, I, I, I tried to cancel my subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, now, you know, I, I, I love the paper. It's got great information, but they tricked me. And the reason they tricked me, the reason they coerced me is because if I had known how difficult it was to cancel, I would have never signed up. I regretted doing business with the company because when I called the Wall Street Journal to cancel my subscription, I was on the phone for 30 minutes trying to cancel. Now, mind you, when I signed up, it took me 30 seconds, <laughs> yes. right? This is called the Roach Motel technique. And you see it, you know, there's some examples of it online. I think it's interesting that this, uh, this you know, uh, uh, I don't know how old the Wall Street Journal is. They're, they're, they're definitely pre-internet days. You know, it's not just tech companies that can pull coercive tactics. This is an old company uh, that uses this Roach Motel technique of making it very easy to come in and almost impossible to get out. Uh, and so that would be a coercive tactic. So I think that's the, that's the test. Brilliant. Do you know what? That's, you've, you've summed that up really well. I think um, yeah, you've made that really clear for me. And then the, the other thing that was, that was sort of fascinating as you were talking about that was, okay, so you spelled out that it's okay to persuade somebody um, as long as they pass the, the re regret test. So in terms of experience by design and, and, and creating affinity with a brand based on your principles of trigger action, reward, investment, what are your... Um, 
what's your advice or your perspective on using an emotional narrative during um, a brand experience to heighten the um, the reaction of triggers and to get the the action you're looking for? Have you any advice for the audience from that perspective? Sure. So, so I'm a big fan of story, and stories work psychologically for for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, one story scratch this internal trigger, this itch of of, of boredom, right? That people <laughs> want to be entertained, and there's nothing. You know, it sounds like a bad thing that people are are bored, but it's not. You know, it's part of the human condition. In fact, uh, I think this is probably the least boring time in, in history because this is the this we have more things to occupy us than, than ever before, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, you know, boredom has been part of the, the human condition forever and ever and ever. And we can see how many products, you know, everything from our iPhones to video games, to the news, to sports, to, uh, you know, you, you name it. So many products cater to this internal trigger of boredom. And, and so people need to scratch that itch. And I think story satisfies this basic human need to be entertained. So that's one way it works in the first step of the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, actions, if you're thinking about the action phase, uh, stories, uh, make complex concepts much easier to understand. So one of the six principles of making a behavior more likely to occur in the action phase that I described in my book in the, in, in, uh, in the hook, the action phase is making something easier to understand. So stories work, you know, hand in glove in that category because you can take a complex concept and by using metaphor and storytelling, you can make it more understandable. And then variable rewards. This is probably the, 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 the heart of what makes storytelling so impactful is that stories inherently involve uncertainty. So when you think about variable rewards, this third step of the hook, it's all about mystery and the unknown. And storytelling is all about that. Whenever there's a conflict and there's the anticipation of a resolution, what's going to happen next? How is the problem re- resolved? How is the, 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 uh, the antagonist going to figure out their way out of this problem? That all involves the same type of variable rewards that we see on, on slot machines, that we see in Facebook feeds, uh, you know, that all sorts of experiences that, that are uncertain. And we love it. We, it's very engaging to, to use some kind of in, in investment. I'm sorry, some kind of variability when we tell stories. And then finally, in the investment phase, and this is probably the most, you know, one of the most powerful aspects of storytelling, is that we begin to invest emotionally in a story. I mean, if you think about, for example, uh, why people follow the news, you know, if, if you stop watching a particular story and you, you, know, you don't know what's going on, you, you don't care about it anymore. But once you start reading about the characters and their personalities and what's going to happen next, and you, you've invested the time to accrue all this information about the people in a particular story, you become more likely to want to follow it in the future. So, so storytelling maps out beautifully to the four steps of the hook model. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great to hear you put um, story in, that, in the context of, um, you know, of, of, your, of, of your background and, and the scientific approach. You know, the, um, it's funny because it, if somebody tells you a, a half a joke and then disappears, it's like, damn, how, how did that joke yeah. go? You're watching the news and you, you've got to watch it to the end. Did, did you use any um, NLP, any neuro-linguistic programming um, background in, in, in your book, Nick? It sounded like you were describing open loops and, and, that, and that kind of stuff. I'm just interested, where did the neuroscience plug into the research and the framework of your book that you, you put together most? 
Yeah, so NLP, uh, I don't know what people mean by NLP, and I think people mean very different things uh, when they describe it. I intentionally don't touch anything that's related to NLP because, uh, you know, some people refer to stuff that is actually scientifically backed, but there's a lot of stuff that's under the label of <laughs> yeah. NLP, which is not scientifically backed, so I don't, I don't touch any of that stuff. I, I you know, even, even in modern, not, not to give NLP a, a bad rap, even though it deserves it. Um, <laughs> the, even, even modern, I mean, you know, social sciences today, if you've been following the replication crisis, there's lots of studies that we believed were true for decades that turned out to be not replicatable. So I don't touch anything unless it's been in market for, for, you know, at least 20 years, <laughs> right? That's been, that's been validated, that's been replicated. So, you know, I go to the really bare bones stuff around, you know, Skinnerian, uh, behaviorism. Uh, now, of course, there are some problems with with that particular approach, but for the context of product design, there are no problems. Right? It makes tons of sense when you think about operant conditioning. I mean, this is the the, the, the foundations of, of psychology uh, around you know how we learn separate, different behaviors. So, so I like to stick with the old tried and true stuff, frankly. <laughs> okay, fair enough. One thing that um, you do talk about near is um, is um, mental shortcuts uh, heuristics, yeah. and um, I think what's what's be really interesting to see, hear you talk a little bit about is, um, I guess, the audience um, any or anyone putting a story together or creating um, experience by design might engineer step by step what they want an audience to do now. There might be a danger of creating steps that audiences just naturally miss or just completely miss out. Now, I guess that could be a positive if if the audience is you know finding the quickest route to where they want to go, so it's more convenient. But what if there's an experience that's designed and the audience is constantly missing vital information uh, because of these sort of mental shortcuts? Is there any is there any way to sort of safeguard against that, or should it be embraced and just sort of baked into the design? Well, so it, it's difficult to to speak super intelligently about about uh, a particular application without actually seeing you know how how these techniques are applied. But mm-hmm. in, in general, you know, we can use these techniques. Uh, to speed up or slow down the, the user. So, you know, the same techniques around how we want to send people through the steps of the hook by reducing friction, mm-hmm. sometimes there are occasions when you don't want that to happen, when you want to slow people down, when right. you want to make sure yeah. they know exactly what they're doing. So we basically use the process in reverse. Remember, the hook is designed to help people form habits, and habits are defined as behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. So for many behaviors in our life, that's exactly what we want, right? We want people to engage with our product in their day-to-day lives. They want to get in, get out, be very helpful to them in their day-to-day lives, uh, and be a resource that they can turn to habitually. But, but that's not necessarily always the case. For example, if there are you know, one-time behaviors, uh, onboarding-type behaviors, or behaviors where we do want people to have to think for a minute, then we would not want to use uh, the, the steps the same way. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we work with a lot of organizations who, um, just because of who they are, they attract a lot of attention at the start of a process, like a sort of, you know, at the top of a marketing funnel, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort of things could you do to, to create more friction in order to sort of shake the wheat from the chaff kind of thing, you know, to sort of really separate out the audience from the people that you want and the people you, you don't? 
Well, can you give me any specifics about uh, a particular campaign you have in mind? So, if, can you imagine, uh, I won't mention the brand, but a, a brand that generally a lot of people love. Um, yeah. So when they put up a, a job advert, for example, uh, they get hundreds, if not thousands, of applications because people just want to work for this brand. But 99% of them, if not more, are just completely unqualified for the job, and it creates an, an admin nightmare. Mm. So, and you know, we come up against this quite a lot. Um, and there's very easy, blunt barriers that you can um, put in place. But actually, that can piss a lot of people off. And if we're trying to create uh, experience by design, which is a little bit more empathetic, then perhaps those blunt tools are no longer as relevant as they once were. You know, so is there a more intelligent approach to, um, to causing friction on purpose to separate out people you might want to engage with versus people you don't? Yeah, so, so that's, that's a good example. I, I think the idea is to, is to create friction for the people who uh, don't qualify for one reason or another mm-hmm. uh, and make it as easy as possible for the people who do qualify. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so maybe what you do is you, know, you, you, you make one of the very first questions a uh, quantitative criteria that can be a yes or no answer. For example, if you, know, you need a, a, an advanced degree, well, that's going to filter out a huge amount of people Mm-hmm. Uh, right off the bat, uh, so 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 in this case, you know, I wouldn't use the hook per se because this is a one-time thing. Applying for a job is never going to become a habit. We don't want it to become a habit. It's not something that people <laughs> with little or no conscious thought. So what we can do is is use uh, the principles of of B J Fogg, who talks about B equals M A T, that behavior equals motivation, ability, and a trigger at the same time. And so we could use the A part, ability. Uh, to to make it too difficult for someone who doesn't qualify before they even get started, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, and while reducing the friction for the kind of person who we do want right up front. Perfect, perfect. So, um, Nia, that's just about all we've got time for. I literally, I could talk, I could talk to you all day about this because it absolutely <laughs> fascinates me. It really, it really does. Um, and I read your book when it first came out, and it's one of those books that. Um, uh, this is going to sound cliche now because it sounds like it's a, a habit, but it's one of those books that I read every year just as a reflection. <laughs> so I don't know whether you've baked something into the book to make people come back or not, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave that as a mystery. But, wow, uh, that's, that's a huge compliment. I really appreciate that. It's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely true as well. My, my partner, Dave, he has it on his uh, bookshelf in the <laughs> office as well. So, (laughs) So, but before you go, um, I just want to thank you for joining us, but is there anything else you'd like to leave us with or draw our audience's attention towards? Sure. So uh, one one thing I'd love to announce here is that I'm uh, writing a new book. Uh, My next book is called Indistractable, and it's kind of the follow-up to Hooked in that uh, I, I, I deal with this question of, you know, how do we do the things we want to do and why do we get off track so often? So this isn't really a, a product management book or, you know, in, in the vein of my first book, Hooked. This is more about a, 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 for, for us as individuals. Uh, how, how do we uh, be the kind of people who do what they say and say what they do? It's really about, uh, about how do we stay focused? How do we build what I think is, is the skill of the century? Uh, which is the ability to to stay focused and, and, and tune out distractions. So how do we do that? So I'm taking the same psychology used to build habit-forming products and now asking how can we use those insights to be more productive, to live better lives, to do the kind of things we really want to do 
uh, by becoming indistractable. So if you're interested in that topic, I haven't published the book yet. It'll be out sometime this year, and you can stay updated on my progress and on my writing on that subject on my website. It's near and far, near spelled like my first name, N-I-R, and far.com. And my first book, which is available wherever books are sold, is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Fantastic, fantastic. And maybe we'll have to have you on the show again once that book's out so we can uh, learn a little bit more about um, Indistractable. That sounds fantastic. I would love to. Thank you so much. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thanks again for your time. That's all we've got time for this week. Join me again next week for more storytelling insights. Thanks so much.